in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer here at HowStuffWorks and I love all things tech. And if you listened to the previous episode, you heard part one of what was up with Stuxnet, the infamous computer virus that made headlines in 2010 and uh, opened up a new era of cyber warfare. If you have not already listened to that episode, I recommend you go do it because we're going to pick up right where we left off. Now, in the previous episode, I set the ground by talking about how Iran had been pursuing a nuclear power strategy and potentially developing nuclear weapons as well, much to the consternation of other nations like the United States. And that at some point at a uranium enrichment facility in Iran, people began to notice that centrifuges were really acting up. They were breaking down way more frequently than they should have been considering their age and how much they were working. At the same time, there was this tiny little uh, antivirus company that had found some sort of weird code on an Iranian machine that was having a, a problem. It was constantly crashing and rebooting. And that led to the discovery of some malware that Microsoft would later name Stuxnet. That malware would uh, affect various machines running on different versions of Windows. And it seemed really, really virulent. Like it would very quickly infect a machine. But no one was really sure what it was doing at this point. They they had not really unraveled the payload of the malware. They more or less understood how it was spreading, how it was going from one computer to the next, but they weren't sure why. Like, what was the purpose of it? What did it actually do? And that's kind of where we pick up now. The date we're talking about is July 16th, 2010. This is less than a week after the uh, news broke about Stuxnet actually being a thing. And there was a security analyst with Symantec named Liam Omerchu who took a look at the main Stuxnet file and he was gobsmacked. The file was way larger than your typical malware would tend to be. Malicious software is usually pretty simple. It's often inelegant and it might only be 15 kilobytes in size or less. It just needs to be big enough to do whatever it is the hacker intended for it to do and smaller sizes are usually easier to slip in through something else than something that's larger. But Stuxnet was different. It was 500 kilobytes, much larger than your typical malware, and it didn't seem to contain any filler data in it. It wasn't like there was some sort of extra piece of data to make it look like it was something else, like a JPEG or a music file or something along that. Omerchu saw that the file had been through a packer, sort of like um, a zip application, something that would compress the file. What's more, the people who had made it used an off-the-shelf compressor called Ultimate Packer for executables, or UPX. So they didn't bother to make their own tool. They used an off-the-shelf tool. That made it very easy to unpack, because all you had to do was have a copy of this tool. So Omerchu was able to unpack this file without very much fuss. But here's the thing. Even though this wasn't a case where hackers had created a customized packer, which would make it more difficult to detect. Uh, the simple compression was a bit of a uh, 
I don't want to say a trap, but it was certainly misleading because the rest of the file showed that they had gone to a considerable length to hide what was happening and to create a very sophisticated type of malware. The unpacked file ballooned in size to 1.18 megabytes. Remember, it had been 500 kilobytes, so this is more than twice the size of that packed file. At this stage, Omerchu saw what Baldwin had noticed. Baldwin, of course, was the analyst I talked about in the last episode who had discovered that there were references to two different pieces of software created by a German company called Siemens that made programs that were designed for other businesses. So this was the point where Omerchu saw that same information. The payload of the virus took the form of a DLL file. DLL stands for Dynamic Link Library. It's a file extension found in Windows machines. The Stuxnet DLL contained smaller DLLs within it, and each of those layers were encrypted. So it was like unraveling it, you found another puzzle, and inside that was another puzzle, and the puzzles all were using different uh, strategies in order to encrypt them. So it made it very tricky to find out what actually this thing was supposed to do. He also saw that Stuxnet was being incredibly sneaky. The malware was designed to live in a computer's memory. So instead of a computer referencing its hard drive space in order to pull up information from the uh, malware, which would make it easier to actually track down if you were looking for it, it would just reference it in its actual memory. And it altered the application programming interface for Windows so that it could execute code without getting picked up by antivirus software. Essentially, when Windows would go to execute a process related to Stuxnet, the altered API would direct that inquiry to the file resting in the computer's memory beneath detectable levels. So the computer would just from its perspective, looked like everything was working perfectly. But in reality, things were getting rerouted so that it was covering up the virus's tracks. Stuxnet would also hide its processes within other processes. So it was obfuscating what was going on. And it was really a confusing and effective way to hide what was actually happening. Omerchu's conclusion was that the programmer's who made this must have really known their stuff, and they must have worked really hard to make it difficult to detect Stuxnet even without a thorough, in, uh, or even with, rather, a thorough investigation. Omerchu also saw that the code had been encrypted and that it contained further encrypted files within it, and whomever had set it up had gone to great pains to make it very difficult to get at the raw code. And he noted that the malware had an expiration date on it as well. That date was June 24th, 2012. And that meant that the malware would actually consult a computer's onboard clock and look and see what day it is, what time it is. If the date was after June 24th, 2012, the malware wouldn't install itself on the target computer. So it was like a checklist, like check the date. Is it before June 24th, 2012? It is gravy. Let's go there. If it was after, it was like eh, too late now and stop. So any computers previously infected with Stuxnet could continue and would continue to be compromised, they wouldn't magically become uh, clear on June 25th, 2012, but no new computers would get infected by Stuxnet. Omerchu and his team also found that the malware had a phone home kind of feature. 
Every single time it infected a new computer, the malware would attempt to send a message back to headquarters. The headquarters was masked by using two domains that appeared, at least on casual inspection, to belong to soccer fans. One URL was todaysfootball.com, football spelled F-U-T-B-O-L, and the other was mypremierfootball.com, and again, football, F-U-T-B-O-L. The owner of the domains was unknown, uh, but when they started to take a closer look at it, they realized that the registration had a fake name attached to it and that the credit cards associated with the account were fraudulent. The servers hosting the domains were in Malaysia, and Denmark, but that didn't really necessarily mean anything. It was just confusing. The phone home messages included a small amount of encrypted data. Omerchu's team was able to break the encryption, however, and they saw that an infected machine would send a message that gave the server the infected machine's internal IP address, which version of Windows the machine was using, and whether or not that machine also happened to have those two Siemens programs installed on it. Eventually, the researchers figured out that Stuxnet would shut itself down if it could not find evidence of those Siemens programs on the host machine. The virus would continue to try and infect other machines from its infected host if it were on a network system, but otherwise it would not unleash its payload if the Siemens programs weren't present, which was also confusing because Here you had some malware that was so specific that it only leapt into action if those two programs were on the host computer. Otherwise, it wouldn't do anything at all. So it clearly wasn't meant to wreak havoc across all machines. It was still problematic that it was infecting lots of different computers because obviously you never want to have malware infect your computer. But if you didn't have those Siemens programs on your computer, it didn't do anything else uh, apart from attempt to infect other computers network to yours. It didn't mess with your files. It didn't encrypt anything without your permission. It didn't delete anything. Everything was fine. So a lot of the code and implementation suggested that Stuxnet was probably the product of years of work from at least one or two or maybe three teams of talented programmers. There were some gaps in the code and implementation, however, that led some security experts to call it perplexingly sloppy or careless. One of those was Nate Lawson, who's a cryptographer, who criticized the code and said that it smacked of amateurism in many ways. And here's a direct quote. He said, I really hope it wasn't written by the USA because I'd like to think our elite cyber weapon developers at least know what Bulgarian teenagers did back in the early 90s. Sick burn, Lawson. As part of their research, Omerchu and his team over at Symantec had contacted the domain name system service providers that were responsible for those two URLs, and they decided to create a, a new destination for all those communications. Uh, it was kind of like a just a, a, a redirect. So these messages that were supposed to go to these two URLs that were posing as soccer fan sites would instead end up going to Symantec. And they were hoping that by looking at the messages that these computers were sending back, they might be able to figure out what the heck this malware was trying to do. So they started looking for any patterns to get a better idea of what was going on. And one of the things they saw was that the majority of computers that were sending the messages were in Iran. Iran also had the most computers hosting these sought-after Siemens programs. So that made them suspect that perhaps the people who made this malware were 
targeting Iran specifically for some reason. Now, in the past, Iran computers had never really been at the high end of infection rates whenever malware would break out. So that suggested to the team that they must have been the intended target. Otherwise, their percentage would not be so high. Uh, someone had to be concentrating on them. Working with that information, that Iran was, in fact, the intended target, and that the virus was specifically looking for machines that had a particular type of industrial control software on it, they started to form hypotheses as to what the purpose of the malware could have been. So one possible explanation is that it was part of an espionage project aimed at Iran's nuclear power program. Uh, Natanz had attracted worldwide attention as it could have been a front operation that appeared to be making nuclear fuel for power purposes, but in reality was secretly enriching uranium in order to make nuclear weapons. So that was one of the possibilities. They also thought that maybe it was targeting perhaps gas pipelines or electric power grids. They weren't entirely sure. Also, the propagation methodology suggested that perhaps the programmers had wanted to infect machines belonging to engineers who were responsible for transferring commands to programmable logic controllers, or PLCs. Those are the type of controllers that the Siemens software would communicate with. Those commands would exist on air-gapped systems, and typically you would transfer the uh, commands by downloading the commands uh, the proper set of instructions onto a USB stick, and then you would transfer the commands to a computer responsible for controlling the PLCs via that USB stick. So you don't have the machine, the kind of the overseer for all these PLCs connected to the internet. That would be a security vulnerability. Instead, you would create the program instructions on a different machine, put it on a USB stick, and then transfer it over to the overseer computer. And, uh, the problem was that Stuxnet would propagate itself and copy itself onto USB sticks that were inserted onto computers that had been infected by Stuxnet. So you could have an engineer who's just innocently trying to transfer some commands to another computer actually infect that computer. So the engineers themselves became the carriers of the virus. If one worked for the hypothesis that the code was, in fact, meant to target computers at Iran's uranium enrichment facility, it narrowed down the list of potential attackers. For one thing, the sophistication of the code, the links the hackers went to in order to avoid detection, and the rapid response to the presence of the code being announced to the world in general suggested that that must have been a state-sponsored group, a government-funded attempt. So whomever was doing this had access to some pretty extensive resources. The candidates that people were identifying early on included Russia, China. Both of them had been working on state-sponsored cyber warfare strategies for a few years. Uh, Israel was another possibility. And then there was, of course, the United States. Oh, and there was also the chance that Iran had somehow developed this malware itself and then accidentally unleashed it on its own computers, but that was considered a lesser possibility. So who done it? I'll talk more about that in a second. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. So while they were looking through the code, the semantic team noted that they saw something that looked like it was a date that was written out in Unix format. So when you unscramble that, the date would have been May 9th, 1979. And this was a potential hint as to the origin of this malware. 
On May 9, 1979, the Iranian government executed a businessman named Habib Elganian by, fi- by firing squad. So Elganian had been accused of spying on Iran on behalf of Israel. He was a philanthropist and a member of the Jewish community in Iran. And he was then accused by the government saying, you are an actually, you're an Israeli spy. There was nothing in the code itself that would directly link to that event. There were no mentions of the name Elganian in there, but there was that date. And that was something that kind of stood out to the team when they were thinking about it. They did a Google search on that date to see if anything notable had happened. And when they saw that, they thought, huh, because one of the entities we thought about as possibly being responsible for this was Israel. So maybe that's an implication there. So I thought maybe this is a actually a, a long run at some form of retribution in response to that execution. There was another potential reference to Israel that was found in this code, although this one's definitely very tenuous. And that was in the form of one of the file directories and a file that was found within that Stuxnet code. The file directory contained the words Myrtus, M-Y-R-T-U-S, and Guava. Myrtus is the genus that Guava belongs to. And in Jewish history, there is a prominent figure named Queen Esther. But before she became queen, Esther's name was Hadassah, which is the Hebrew word for myrtle or Myrtus. Now, again, this was like a long shot connection if you're looking at this. But it was a possible clue that maybe someone from Israel was involved. However, other people pointed out that there was another potential explanation for the Myrtus name, that in fact it wasn't Myrtus, but my RTUs, because RTU could stand for remote terminal unit. So it wasn't you know, a smoking gun by any stretch of the imagination. The semantic team also saw that the Stuxnet code contained a function that logged every machine the malware had infected along its way. So that instance of malware, once it passed from one machine to another, it would send a note back to HQ, and that note would include, hey, I jumped from machine A to machine B. So by looking at an instance of the malware, you could track all the machines that it had infected. In fact, you could trace the infection from the last point all the way to the very first one. So if you intercepted the message, as Symantec had been doing because they had contacted those domain name servers to send that traffic to them instead of to those bogus soccer sites, you could actually trace back every infected machine to that point of infection. And from there, you could look at the computers that were initially targeted as the starting point. Using that method, they identified five companies in Iran that served as the insertion points for the malware. And according to Symantec, those five companies accounted for 12,000 infected machines at those locations and were responsible for an additional 100,000 more machine infections in more than 100 countries. Now, one of the reasons Stuxnet was uncovered so quickly, relatively speaking, was because the designers had made it so viral. Using USB as an injection method helped reduce the target zone for the virus, but still the methods that Stuxnet depended upon to go from machine to machine pretty much guaranteed that it would eventually infect computers outside of its intended target zone. Most people agree that the Stuxnet designers 
wanted to really contain the infection. They just wanted to surgically target specific machines. But they also really, really wanted to get a hit. So it was kind of a balancing act. How do you make sure that your malware is virulent enough so that you are guaranteed to hit your target, but you don't want it spreading throughout the world? They thought they got a good balance, especially with that USB delivery methodology. But as it turns out, it definitely expanded beyond Iran's borders. And that, in turn, made it more likely that someone was going to figure out that it existed. And once you know it exists, you can start to make countermeasures and protect yourself against it and try to remove the virus from infected machines. So that computer that was caught in that crash reboot phase ended up being a red flag. But even if that computer had not failed at that time, some other machine would surely have done something similar and then Stuxnet would have been uncovered. So it probably would have just been another month, maybe two months. It's impossible to say because history's already unfolded. But it wouldn't have gone unknown forever because, again, it was just – it was too violent. It was moving beyond – the intended audience or intended targets. Even at this stage, however, no one was totally sure what Stuxnet was actually doing. They knew what it, how it was doing things, like how it was infecting machines, and they knew that it was looking for this Siemens software packages, but it didn't know why. What is its purpose? It was clearly searching for logic controllers, so stuff that was going to control industrial equipment. This was not something that was meant to infect the average person's PC. It was very much an industrial approach. And it was targeting Iranian companies. That seemed to be clear. And security researchers had figured out that Stuxnet would replace a legitimate DLL file for a Siemens software package with what appeared to be a duplicate. And in fact, it could do all of the functionality of the original DLL file. It just had a few extra tricks up its sleeve, like it could overwrite instructions to logic controllers which could be used to sabotage machinery. So in other words, you send a command to a particular industrial device. This malware could potentially change that command. Not only could it change it, it could send feedback that the intended command was the one that went through. So to you, when you review it, it looks like, oh no, everything did exactly what it was supposed to do. I mean, I told it to do X, and according to the computer log, that's what happened. It did X. But in reality, it did Y. It's just that the Stuxnet was such a clever, clever little piece of software. It could cover up its tracks and make you think that everything was working the way it was supposed to, and yet stuff was breaking. The malware would also sit dormant for about two weeks and just record all operations that would go on during those two weeks, but it wouldn't change anything. Then, when the malware would start messing with stuff, start changing those operations, start changing those commands, internally, it would replay the recordings of those operations from the previous two weeks. This is kind of like movies, you know, like in Speed, where uh, Keanu Reeves' character is able to get the video footage of him on the bus repeated on a loop so that Dennis Hopper's character doesn't get wise that they're actually trying to get off the bus and instead they're just being really focused about going more than 55 miles per hour. 
There are a ton of movies that do this where someone has messed with a security camera. So it's just showing a repeated loop of video while they go and do something sneaky. That's exactly what this this uh, virus was doing, except instead of it being video footage, it's a recording of the operations that it was going through. On August 17th, 2010, a Symantec team went public with the assertion that Stuxnet was designed to cause physical damage to infrastructure controlled by logic controllers. They still weren't sure exactly what type of systems might be the targets. They suspected it was nuclear power plants or nuclear uh, enrichment facilities, uranium enrichment facilities, but they weren't entirely certain. They said it could be gas lines or it could be something else. But they figured the purpose was not to steal information, but rather actual sabotage to cause physical damage to targets. And that would be the first documented case of actual cyber warfare. Five days later, a little bit later in August, Iranian officials ordered the outbound connections to those two dummy URLs that had been gathering information on Stuxnet-infected machines to be severed within the country. So in other words... That information would not go outside of Iran anymore if it was being directed to those two domains. The machines were still infected. They just couldn't send back information to HQ. A security analyst named Ralph Langner, who specialized in PLCs, those logic controllers that were being affected, was looking into Stuxnet. Now, normally, he and his analysts wouldn't bother with computer viruses because That wasn't their field. Their field was looking at logic controllers. But since Stuxnet targeted logic controllers through Windows-based machines, he felt it was necessary to understand that malware a little bit better. And he deduced that the real purpose of the malware was to disrupt Iran's nuclear program. He published a few blog posts about this in September 2010. The first was titled, Hack of the Century. And in those blog posts, he laid out his hypothesis that Stuxnet was targeting centrifuges in Iran for the purposes of destroying them and disrupting Iran's plans at the very least. Now, mistakenly, he identified the nuclear power plant Boucher as the target because he thought that the uranium enrichment facilities were co-located at the nuclear power plant. In reality, they were not. They were miles away in the tons, but... He thought Boucher was probably the target at the time. It was later Frank Rieger, who worked for a German security firm called GSMK, who identified Natanz as the target for the malware rather than Boucher. As for who was behind it, well, all signs pointed to a joint United States-Israeli operation. As early as 2005, advisors were asking President George Bush to do something about Natanz. Israeli officials were asking about an airstrike, but Bush was not eager to go down that path. This is George W. Bush, by the way, the second George Bush. The United States was already at that time involved in armed conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. They were not going terribly well. It was very slow going and it had a lot of negative uh, publicity about it. So, George W. Bush wasn't really eager to also throw Iran into the mix. Cyber war experts suggested to the president that a digital strike was possible and laid out their idea for using code to disrupt critical operations in the uranium enrichment facility and to actually damage and destroy centrifuges just by using code. Now, at the time, this was still considered a pretty radical idea. They decided that this was a, a decent 
line of attack. They got the go-ahead. Uh, it got the code name Operation Olympic Games behind the scenes. But, uh, yeah, it went ahead. Uh, now, it's never been officially acknowledged, but the reports that have come out since the time of Stuxnet stated that President Bush had requested $400 million from Congress to fund covert operations with the purpose of interfering with Iran's nuclear program. And Congress said, okie doke. Now, not all of that money went to the development of Stuxnet. Some of it went toward other efforts to stir up trouble in Iran. The plan was to slow down Iran's uranium enrichment operations. There were no illusions that their efforts would destroy the facility, but rather gum up the works enough to keep Iran from making a lot of progress while they figured out another way to confront the situation. Reportedly, General James Cartwright of the U.S. Strategic Command and Keith Alexander, who was a former NSA director, were in charge of the high-level planning for Operation Olympic Games. The NSA and an Israeli team from Defense Forces Unit 8200, which is kind of their version of the NSA, were responsible for actually developing the code. By changing the rotational speed of the centrifuges repeatedly, they could cause the machines to tear themselves apart. Now, there was no danger of a nuclear explosion. It wasn't like they were going to trigger some sort of cataclysmic event. But the uranium was just in gas form. So if you made the centrifuges break, it would kind of disperse into the air. Now, it was dangerous for humans to be exposed to uranium gas, but it wasn't explosive or anything like that. It apparently took about eight months from the time the plan was approved to when it was ready to be implemented, which was a really fast turnaround. The team presented pieces of a destroyed centrifuge to President Bush as proof that their idea of using computer code to tear physical machinery apart was legitimate. They had acquired some centrifuges, the exact same kind that Iran had been relying upon, and they had run several tests using code to change up the frequency at which the centrifuge would rotate. And they changed it repeatedly until it would literally spin itself into pieces. So they created an early build of what would become Stuxnet. Later on, people would refer to it as Stuxnet 0.5. This version of it somehow eventually found its way onto computers in Iran, though the version there didn't target the spinning motor of the centrifuges. Instead, it was targeting valves that controlled the flow of uranium gas into and out of the centrifuges. So they could mess with the... Uh, the gas pressure inside the centrifuge, but they could not change the rotation speed. When President Obama took office in 2008, he was reportedly informed of the operation, and he decided to have it continue because a non-military intervention in Iran's nuclear plan was still preferred to the alternative. I got a little bit more to talk about as far as uh, Stuxnet is concerned. But before I get into this last section, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, we've talked a lot about the payload. We talked a lot about the delivery system of Stuxnet. We talked about what it was meant to do. It was meant to disrupt Iran's nuclear program. So the question is, did it actually succeed in what it was supposed to do? Well, that is actually debatable. If we assume, as has been reported, that the goal of the malware was to slow down Iran's nuclear plan, the answer is it kind of succeeded. 
despite Stuxnet and other strategies that were employed at the same time, they were all designed to limit Iran's nuclear capabilities. The country was able to produce more enriched uranium in 2010 than it had in previous years. The country made less of it than what they had anticipated. They had projected that they would make much more than what they did because of the setbacks they experienced from Stuxnet and other measures. But still, year over year, they produced more enriched uranium. So while Iran wasn't where the government officials wanted it to be in terms of its nuclear aspirations, it was still making progress just more slowly than what they wanted. Stuxnet also ended up opening up the possibility of a new era of cyber warfare. There had already been plenty of incidents of state-sponsored hackers inserting malicious code into the infrastructure of other nations. So that was not new. But this, Stuxnet, marked the first documented case of someone using computers to cause physical damage to a country's equipment. And once people saw what was possible, it meant there would be future attempts that would be built on that same realization. So that's not great. One of Stuxnet's legacies was a warning that it's no longer just a world in which computers can be the targets. Programmable logic circuits are legit targets, and they are incorporated into all sorts of different critical infrastructure systems, like power grids and gas pipelines. And unlike computers, there were no antivirus software packages that could protect PLCs. If you could protect the computers that interface with those PLCs, you'd be pretty safe. But Stuxnet had shown that it was possible to make this very hard to do, and it concerned a lot of folks in multiple industrial organizations as a result. Imagine that just a few lines of code could cause billions of dollars in damages by making critical pieces of infrastructure fall apart or overheat or otherwise fail. It's kind of scary. Another legacy was that hackers would use the Stuxnet vectors and approach in future malware attacks. They would use that same strategy, sometimes using the same vulnerabilities, because even though a operating system might patch a vulnerability once it's discovered, you still have to have that patch roll out to everybody. People have to update their operating systems. By the way, this is a good time to remind you to make sure your software is up to date, because if there are vulnerabilities that exist, those are active on your software if you haven't patched yet. So while everyone else would be immune to an attack that has been patched, the vulnerability that the attack would rely upon has been patched out of existence, if you haven't uploaded or updated, rather, your software with that patch, you're still potentially a victim. So make sure your software is up to date. Another legacy, uh, besides the fact that now we have the fear of Stuxnet, was that you could end up getting a similar approach that had a different payload entirely. One of those that seemed to fit this definition at first anyway was called Duku, D-U-Q-U. Unlike Stuxnet, it did not have a payload aimed at programmable logic controllers or PLCs. Instead, its payload had a keylogger. And a keylogger is a program that just records every keystroke made on the infected computer's keyboard. So it's a way to steal stuff like usernames and passwords as well as other information. But while this payload was different, the delivery mechanism that the malware relied upon was nearly identical to Stuxnet. And like Stuxnet, 
Dooku had a self-destruct code built into it. The malware was set to delete itself and all traces of itself from a machine after 36 days. As it turns out, it wasn't perfect at doing this. It actually would leave behind a few traces if you knew what to look for, but you had to find out about Dooku first or else you wouldn't even know to look for the trace evidence it would leave behind. Now, this suggested to the semantic team, the same team that had investigated the Stuxnet virus, that the code was intended as an advance scout to seek out target computers for the quote-unquote real attack that would be sure to follow. So, in other words, it wasn't necessarily meant as an attack all in of itself. It was meant to identify potential target computers. Dooku, as it turned out, appeared to be designed to attack certificate authorities. Now, these are the companies that create those digital certificates I mentioned in the previous episode. And it does this on behalf of other organizations. And those digital certificates act as an authentication, a, a proof that a piece of software comes from a trusted source. So if you could compromise one of these organizations that creates these certificates, you could issue yourself seemingly legitimate certificates from all sorts of trusted sources and use that to deliver malware to many potential targets that would have next to no defense against it because their machines are trusting the source. They've been told by the operating system, hey, you can let this guy in. I know him. He's cool. Later on, investigation into Dooku indicated that it actually preceded Stuxnet. It was an older virus. It just wasn't discovered till after Stuxnet had been discovered. It may have actually served as a guide for the team who designed Stuxnet. They may have relied upon Dooku's architecture to build Stuxnet. It did not use USB sticks to infect computers, however. Instead, the code was hidden inside a bogus Word document, and the document contained the malware that would exploit a vulnerability in the font parsing engine for Windows. Dooku was suspected of gathering some of the information that Stuxnet would later capitalize on, but researchers also felt that the two malware packages had been designed by different teams who were working from essentially the same foundation. Another malware suite, dubbed Flame by Kaspersky, used a similar approach to Stuxnet in some ways, but this malware was modular, meaning different payloads could be attached to the delivery mechanism. So, the virus could do different things depending upon which modules you attached to it. It would determine what the code would actually do once the machine that you were targeting was infected. Uh, some modules would end up activating a microphone so that you could record nearby speech. Some would take screenshots of the target computer's screens. Others would just be keyloggers or programs that could copy documents that were stored on the computer and send it back to a different computer, spying stuff, in other words. Now, Flame was enormous. It was 20 megabytes. So that's huge. You know, Stuxnet, when it was packed up, was 500 kilobytes, and it was considered big. But 20 megabytes was huge if you had all the different modules added in. And it was really interesting that someone had developed this very sophisticated approach to uh, malware, something that could be adapted to specific uses. And you didn't have to include all the modules. You just include the ones that are important for whatever function you need. 
Uh, it was pretty spooky stuff, really. And like Dooku, further investigations suggested that flame actually came before Stuxnet. Again, it was discovered after Stuxnet, but the compiling code suggested that it actually was made first. And it led some to suspect that the Stuxnet developers had first started using Flame as their guide to create their malware, but then later on they switched gears and used Dooku to finish it out. So that's the story about Stuxnet. There's a lot we still don't know. And I would recommend that, uh, you know, if you're interested in learning more about this virus, uh, check out that book I, I talked about in the first episode. That book is Countdown to Zero Day, Stuxnet and the Launch of the World's First Digital Weapon. The book goes into much more detail about the story of Stuxnet and the people involved. It gives you background on each of them. They're very interesting folks, too. You also learn other weird stories, like how different security firms could have worked with each other and maybe unraveled Stuxnet a little more quickly, but due to some issues with communication and maybe some ego problems, that didn't happen. So I always find those kind of stories to be really interesting too, just as interesting as the political nature and the technological nature of this virus. It was kind of a perfect storm and really a fascinating and ultimately kind of scary topic. The idea of using code to make physical changes to our world in a destructive way is a little worrisome, maybe more than a little, especially when you consider the fact that investigators have found evidence of uh, Chinese hacking code in power grid infrastructure in the United States. Maybe that's just there to spy. Maybe it's also there as a potential way to shut down parts of the power grid should China and the United States ever enter into a more aggressively antagonistic relationship with each other. That's the world we live in now. It helps to educate yourself, but I admit it is kind of scary. But hey, not all topics at Tech Stuff need to be scary. Maybe next week I'll talk about Teddy Ruxpin. I'm being told by Tari that Teddy Ruxpin is terrifying. But if you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, get in touch with me. Let me know. Maybe there's a, a, a company you want me to talk about, a specific technology. Maybe there's a guest I should have on the show, either as someone I should interview or someone who could be a, a guest co-host for the day. Let me know your ideas. Send me the information on uh, email. Here's the address, techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. Make sure you follow us on Instagram. And if you want to watch me record these shows live, go to twitch.tv slash techstuff. There's a schedule there that tells you when I go online. And there's a chat room you can join in and chat away. And I'll be happy to chat with you. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 